All right, so we're continuing in Romans 14. This chunk of text that we're in kind of broadly is 14, verse 1 through 15, uh, verse 13. And because of uh, time, I'm not going to read all of it. Um, What I want to do is to deal with the portions we've already gone over and do a little bit of reminding, and then we'll have a small additional text leading up to uh, verse 23. In verse 23... Is where the title of the sermon comes from, whatever is not of faith is sin. And so we'll be focusing on the first commandment in terms of the idea of faith. And so let's read. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading chapters 14, verses 1 through 23. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike, let each be fully convinced in his own heart, in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he he who does not eat to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. But if we die, We die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, If your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he proves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. 
For whatever is not from faith is sin. You may be seated. So verses 1 through 4, a reminder, what's talked about there, receiving one who's weak in the faith, um, we, should, we should receive one who's weak in the faith into the church, into our affections, into our fellowship. But we should not do it for the purpose of disputing over doubtful things. Rather, we should only seek to dispute about the things that are provable from the word. Right? So we have faith and doubt. These things are laid side by side. So faith, faith is not believing anything. Right? That's faith in a general sense. Right? We can talk about a faith in anything. You can believe that I have the power of flight. It does not make it so. That would be a superstition. But you can believe that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for your sins. You can believe that he turned water into wine. You can believe that he rose again the third day. And some people would say that sounds just as fanciful. But the difference is, one has the testimony of the word of God, and the other one is an invention from the fevered brains of stupid men. And so... Who, who invented it? This guy. So the, the flying thing. So there we go. So the problem is you should only believe the witness of the word of God and not the witness of men. So if it is the case that we are to debate, but not over doubtful things, we're, we're supposed to dispute, right? You can argue over things in the general sense of talking about a view, but the idea of trying to impose a doctrine or impose a practice we should only impose the doctrines and practices that we can prove from the Word of God. And so when we have a weaker brother and we seek to deal with their weakness, their weakness is not superstition. That's sin. Their weakness is not believing the things that God has commanded. So we don't just look around and say, whatever anybody does, as long as they believe it, it's just fine. It's fine. Sure, keep doing that. And what we do is we say, if you think something that you actually have a right to, is a thing that you believe is sin, you're a weaker brother. And if a weaker brother, what we need to do is to help you to see the glorious liberty that you have in Christ and not just pressure the person to do the thing. Right? You don't just say, oh, you think you can't drink alcohol. Well, you're wrong. Here, take a drink. What you do is you argue about it and you do that in an orderly way. But you don't dispute over doubtful things because that stops progress. And here's the funny thing. When you argue over doubtful things as well as things that are provable from the Bible, which things tend to take up the space? And people go, you know what? There's naturally, you know, just go, you know what? Let's focus on the things that are really clear and let's focus on the things that are important. Or do people tend towards endless disputes about the things that are not clear in Scripture because they're not a thing that's been taught about, possibly? Or because we haven't dealt with more basic things and so we go around and like to argue about the hot-button issues as opposed to going down to foundational issues. People tend towards that. Otherwise, social media would go out of business. So what we have is that general tendency. So receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one who believes, he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So this idea here, we're talking about kosher foods. I spent a lot of time on that. Previously, so Acts 15, for example, says don't eat blood, don't eat animals that have blood intentionally preserved in them, don't eat things dedicated to idols. So this is not a text talking about those things. Otherwise, the council in Acts 15 would not reassert them. We wouldn't have two times that eating food dedicated to idols is condemned in the book of Revelation. We wouldn't have that teaching repeatedly. If these things contradict each other, then Christianity is false. Let's deal with that. Let's find something better to do. 
But that's not the case. Christianity is a coherent system. And the Bible is the word of God. It is true. It cannot be broken. And so we make those things to be brought together and we consider how do they resolve. And the answer is that what's being talked about here are the Jewish kosher, kosher laws about food. This is not talking about any rules at all about food. Remember, Leviticus 17 to 19 laid out those rules as not dividing Jew from Gentile. Everybody, even in the Old Covenant, was required to not eat blood, not eat food with the blood in it, and not eat food dedicated to idols. So the things that have been torn down are the things that separate Jew from Gentile. Even the institution of the eating of animals back in Genesis 9, when given to Noah, we were given the fact that animals could be eaten there, but then they were not to be eaten with the blood. And that was because the blood represents the life. In the blood is the life. So verse 3, the text only makes sense if we're talking about a thing that God has actually authorized. The one who's strong is actually believing what's been revealed. The one who's weak is failing to believe some of the explicit statements or necessary inferences of the Word of God. So, we're not permitted to judge each other. So that means that there's no church discipline, and that means that we should never make any moral judgments, because when we make moral judgments, we're implicitly judging each other. So, no. What it's saying is, we are not permitted to judge by standards we make up. We can only judge with Christ because Christ is the master and before the master he stands or falls. So in 1 Corinthians, when Paul says that he judges with the people in Corinth, the brother who's to be cast out because of an unrepentant public sin, he is repeating what Christ says in Matthew 18, which is in Matthew 18, Christ says that he is with the church when the church makes a judgment in according with his word. So Christ makes the judgment. We see it in his word. We pass judgment according to the word. And that is how we don't judge. Instead, Christ is judging and we're submitting to his judgment. Now, if that's the case, next page, looking through this chunk of verses 5 through 6, the question of one day above another this is talking about the, and we spent a lot of time on this yesterday, last week, right? One day above another, or is every day alike? Well, the old covenant days is what's being talked about. We looked at the fact that over and over again you had food and days, food and days, food and days. These are the things that get dealt with in the Pauline texts about not judging each other. What's the context? This is the time between the ending of the old covenant and the new covenant. And so we have the old covenant is no longer obligatory from the resurrection of Christ. But it is not sin to keep the old covenant practices until it's passed away. When does it pass away? We're told that it passes away when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is when it becomes sin to keep the old covenant practices. Also, there's this problem that people who had the Old Covenant practices sometimes wanted to impose them as obligatory. And so we see Paul in one case, he's willing to circumcise a man to avoid offense. And in another case, he refuses to do so because he's unwilling to allow people to force that as though it's an obligation in the New Covenant era. And so even during that time of overlap, what we call the Days of Messiah, where the apostolic ministry continued, that generation period of time, during that time, 
it was allowable to keep the Old Covenant ceremonies, including the Old Covenant Sabbath and you know, Passover and uh, temple, or, you know, the, 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 the Feast of Booths and, and all of the Old Covenant days, the feasts, the new moons, the, the Old Covenant Sabbath. That was all permissible, but it was not obligatory. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about the Lord's Day. If he's talking about the Lord's Day, that doesn't make sense in the context of weaker brother or stronger brother. A weaker brother doesn't invent doctrines. A weaker brother fails to believe things that have been revealed. And so that means that the Lord's Day cannot be what's talked about. If the Lord's Day is an invented doctrine, it is not something that a weaker brother believes. It's a false doctrine that's being imposed. If it's talking about the Old Covenant days and someone thinks they're still obligatory, that person has not realized the implications of the coming of Christ and the fact that he has fulfilled all those types and shadows and therefore we are free from them and no longer have to keep them. And so the simplified one in seven Sabbath on the first day of the week is not what is being talked about. It cannot be what is being talked about. That's not the doctrine of a weaker brother. That's the doctrine of superstition. Or the Lord's Day is instituted by God, in which case it is obligatory to us. And so we looked at that and we went through all the verses related to it. So the weaker brother has raised, was raised in the Old Covenant. He doesn't have clarity about the freedom of the New Covenant. And he's not seeing the ways in which the old kosher food laws and the Hebrew holy days are no longer obligatory. Those things differentiated Jew from Gentile. And they have been removed. This is talking about the old ceremonies that differentiated Jew from Gentile. Now, verse 7, the chunk, verses 7 through 13. Those who believe all that's been made is for the glory of God, who believe the goal of glorifying God, those people are seeking to do all things to the glory of God. We seek the same goal. We should be careful to not despise each other for not knowing the full freedom we have. We should not despise each other for refusing to be bound by things that are not provable as an obligation. So we should not cause offense without a duty to do so, and we should give up liberties for a time for the good of our neighbor. But when the weaker brother tries to impose an obligation in the institution of the church, like with church discipline, then you have an obligation to resist. So those are the things we've gone over. That's what the, the text lays out. And those are... Uh, then carrying through, I'm sorry, also verses 14 through 18, um, we again have the things that are unclean. These are the kosher laws. Uh, the idea that food and days get lumped together. We talked about how that's done over and over again by Paul. And so when we think about what are the things that have ended and what are the things that continue, the book of Luke, the book of Acts, those are both written focused on the priestly elements, the changing of the administration. First and Second Corinthians focuses on that. And Hebrews also focuses on it. Those books are the most helpful books in the New Testament to help us to see the difference between the Old and the New Covenants. So now, the text that we are coming into, the New Text, verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for the man who eats with offense. 
It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So page 4, verse 19. Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So we're supposed to pursue the things which make for peace and edify another. What things make for peace? The sixth commandment, do not murder, is on the other side it has a positive duty to seek the life of your neighbor, to advance the life of your neighbor. We look at the Westminster Larger Catechism as it lays out those duties. And so that's the principal commandment by which you you think about how to make peace. All the commandments relate to the preserving of peace, but the Sixth Commandment is the principal one there. The duties of the law show us how to seek peace. And we even think about the first table. If we don't have the same goal, if we don't have the first commandment, glorifying God as the goal, then we're going to have different ends that we're pursuing. Now, have you ever tried to accomplish something with somebody who had a different goal in mind? You you get together, you start working together, and you think, why aren't we working very effectively together? And you realize, what we're trying to do is two different things. I think I'm trying to make a chair. He thinks we're trying to make a car. The tools we brought are very different. The things we're doing, very bad communication. Why would you do that? And so that problem of getting together to accomplish different tasks is often what happens in churches where people just kind of say, we want everybody to come, you know, you don't need to change really, there's not, not a different goal that, that we need to discuss, we just need to get together. And if you don't have the goal in mind, then you're not going to figure out what you should do, and very quickly the church becomes a social club. You lose any sort of purpose of the church. So the law of God provides for us the goal, and it provides for us the means. And so a part of having peace is having the same goal, which is what Paul's been emphasizing. He's been saying that if you live unto the Lord, right, then you're of the same group. If you're living with the goal of the glory of God in mind, then you're of the same group. And now what we're discussing is how to glorify God. Should we keep the day or should we not keep the day? Should we eat the food or should we not eat the food? And so we're discussing it in the context of the goal. So having the same goal is important. The other thing that makes for peace is having the same means. And so in order to figure out what the goal is and to figure out what the means are to accomplish the goal, which tools to use in what order, we have to have the same source of authority. And so that source of authority, the word of God, the necessary explicit statements and necessary inferences of the revealed religion, the the scriptures, the, the words, the propositions given by God, And so we have that authority. So the activities that make for peace include learning how to argue from the more basic to the less basic. If you argue over hot-button issues or if you argue over small details before resolving bigger problems, you're going to create strife. So you have to think about things in order. So I've talked to you about this before. This is not a new concept. Since the last time we talked about it, do you feel like you have a better outline of how to do that? That's the question. Are you starting to apply that? What's the thing to be done? Well, the first thing to consider is how you know. 
The Word of God is how you know, and you carefully consider how to deal with disputes out of the Word of God. Then, the next thing to consider is the nature of God and the decrees of God. And so as we deal with God and what He has made and what He does in history, then what we do is we begin to move from there into the greater details of what he's done in history. And we can also start to think about what God has commanded in his law. So as we consider what he's commanded in his law, we have the basic view of what is good being laid out. And as we think about that, we need a way to organize it. You can take, think about this. If you try to take the whole law of God and just take all the verses of the law of God, every commandment from any place in scripture, you're going to have hundreds of verses that tell you duties. Do this, don't do that. If you just try to memorize those things, how quickly do you think you're going to have an effective framework for thinking about good and evil? It's going to take you a really long time. Now, God, in his condescension toward us, has given to us a basic organizing principle, and that is our duty is summed up in two commands. Love God love neighbor. Now, some people just say, I don't have to keep the law, I just need to love people, and I need to love God. That's a false dichotomy. How do you love your neighbor? By doing what Jesus commands. How do you love God? By doing what Jesus commands. Okay, so we have the Ten Commandments. They explain for us how to love God. Commandments 1 through 4. Love neighbor. Commandments 5 through 10. Those are organizing principles. The rest of the work involves figuring out how do the other detailed commandments now fit into those commands. Those are buckets. They are hooks upon which you can put other commandments. They're buckets in which you can organize the commandments. And it is so much easier to remember the details when you have large overarching categories. So when you have these two major categories of love God, love neighbor, and then you have the Ten Commandments broken out underneath them, it becomes much easier to figure out the details of your duty. And you begin to be able to remember things as they relate to each other. So the law of God laid out in the Ten Commandments provides for us a way of arguing from the more basic to the less basic on ethical matters. So we have this organization... And we apply it, and we try to say, this issue, what commandment does it relate to? Or, how do we know what we should do in this case? Those are the kinds of questions that help us to draw back. So when there's hot-button issues, the goal is to, without exasperating your conversational partner, pull it down. And so you'd say things like, well, how do we know if we should have one day that's above another? How would we judge that? And so you start to pull together the verses to compare it under the category of the fourth commandment. When discussing these things, you have an attitude of trying to glorify God and realizing this, you don't have the power to teach anybody. You can say the same words one day and the next day, and in one of the days, the person thinks this doesn't make any sense and you're wrong and you're stupid. The next day, they think you're brilliant. That's amazing. You're absolutely right. And you go, I said the same thing the other day, but you didn't believe it. What's the difference? Is it just that if you repeat things enough, people will agree with you? 
The Holy Spirit is the teacher. Mm -hmm. Christ is the teacher, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, his vicar, he illuminates men's minds. You do not have the power to teach, and that's why Christ says to not call any man teacher. You should not call any man teacher because no man has the authority in himself of the truth, and he has not the power in himself to cause others to know the truth. And so that work of the Holy Spirit, we have to discuss with people, realizing that that's the case. Which is why, by the way, we don't cut off conversation after one disagreement. You go through the process of much discussion, repeating things across time, being willing to do that, so that there's opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work, because we take the instruments of words and we pray that God would bless them. We also need to have the humility to realize we might be wrong unless we can prove it from the Bible. And if you can't prove it, why are you trying to impose it on someone else's conscience? So those are the things that help to avoid strife and make for peace. And so you seek to spread the knowledge of the truth, because some people might say, you know what makes for peace, not arguing over doctrine. Doctrine divides, and feel-good enterprises unite, or whatever. And so that reality, that the doctrine is what unites, right? the truth is what unites, makes it so that we know, if we don't argue over doctrine, that's not going to make for peace in the long run. It's going to make for disunity. In fact, there's already disunity, and the question is just, when is the fruit of that disunity going to manifest itself? So you do the work of coming to unity by arguing about doctrine from the more basic to the less basic, seeking to be calm, seeking to hear the other person, seeking to realize that you might need to repeat yourself over and over again, to be patient and calm in that repetition, and to have those discussions on multiple days, and to not just say, if we can't resolve it in this sit-down, then it doesn't work. The willingness to meet multiple times, discuss with much pain in suffering, and being willing to argue for a prolonged period in multiple occasions. So what we do is we seek for peace, and we don't just seek to maintain ignorance, as though ignorance will maintain peace, but rather we seek to edify each other. So we seek to edify each other by seeking to spread the knowledge of God using the means that God has appointed. The first commandment is the duty to know God and to acknowledge God. The second commandment is to do that in the means he's appointed to use the means he's appointed. That's the second commandment. So verse 20, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. So you have the liberty to eat food that's not kosher. And the idea is that at this time, there are people who were dealing with the conscience of the fact that they'd been raised their whole lives to keep the kosher laws. And if you just eat that food in front of them, you're going to cause offense. And if you simply seek to require them to eat it, you're going to cause them to stumble because they don't have the faith for it yet. So instead, what you do is you lay aside your liberties for the sake of edifying, building up, and not destroying. Destroying the work of God for the sake of lesser things is the broad category here. Food is the specific example. So destroying the work of God for the sake of lesser things, that's the thing to take away as a general principle. Which things are lesser than God? All things. So, if you put anything above the knowledge of God, and if you put anything above the idea of helping when you're dealing with your neighbor, 
him to grow in the knowledge of God. Instead, you try to make it so that he'll drink beer with you or whatever. If you try to do that, you are destroying the work of God for the sake of lesser things. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Think about those three categories. Causing your brother to stumble. If you do something, and it makes your brother sin, right? you can't make your brother sin. So what does that mean? If you do something, and it encourages your brother to sin, then he does. Woe to you. It's better, the Lord says, to have a millstone hung around your neck, and to be thrown into the sea, and to cause your brother to stumble. So don't cause your brother to stumble. If you offend your brother, and he doesn't stumble, but instead you sin in front, you don't sin, sorry, you do what's right, do something you have a lawful right to do in front of your brother, but he thinks it's sin, then what you're doing is destroying the unity of the Spirit. You're destroying the work of God for the sake of that lesser right. What about making them weak? What does that even mean? Well, what's strength for? Strength is for accomplishing work. And so, if the Holy Spirit gives us strength so that we can do good work, if you're working with your brother on something that you both agree God commands, and you're working to glorify God, and then you do something that you think you have the liberty to do, but you're aware that he believes is sin, and you're working together on that, that's going to weaken him. It's going to discourage him in the work. And especially if it's in the middle of the work, not just you know on the side in the evening when you're resting from the work, but in the middle of that work. So if that's the case, then you are weakening your brother and you are destroying possible work that would be done. Have you ever been doing something with another person who claims to be a Christian and what, you, what they do you think might be sin and it discouraged or demotivated you? Has that ever happened to you? If it hasn't, what a wonderful life. <laughs> but if it has, you understand the way in which it can kill a day or a part of a day or more. And it can result in sort of a falling apart of the ability to work effectively together. Now, the stronger you are, the more you can deal with those offenses from other people and overlook them, right? We're called to overlook. We're called to bear with each other's weaknesses. But the weaker brother, who is what we're concerned about right now, they're more likely to stumble. They're more likely to have trouble overlooking offenses. They're more likely to be made weak. And so, when you're dealing with weaker brothers, you're careful not to give offense, not to cause them to stumble, not to make them weaker. Now, verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. God is he who does not condemn himself, or sorry, (laughs) happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So even when you can't exercise the liberty that comes from your faith because of the weaker brother, you have the benefit of the joy of a clear conscience, and you have the expectation of the resolution of those disputes for the more full enjoyment of liberty. Verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So don't do what you have doubts about. That's sin. And it brings curse because the action does not proceed from faith. 
Whatever is not of faith is sin. This is the general principle. It is the most important general principle out of this text. It's the principle that governs the most of life. This is also called the regulative principle of life. The regulative principle of life is this. You should always be doing good works. You were made for good works. And good works are only the things that God has commanded in his word. So every moment is a time when you should be doing the things that are good works. Every moment is a time when you should be doing the things that you can prove from God's word are good. And if you're not doing something that God has approved, not doing something that God has commanded, then you couldn't possibly be doing something from faith. You're doing it either out of superstition or doubt. And therefore it's sin. Everything that's to be done is to be done with an understanding of what God has revealed for the goal that God has revealed with the means that God has revealed. That's what living by faith is. Living by faith is believing what God has said and applying it. If you are applying some other doctrine in your choice, it's not a faith, it's superstition. And if you do something that you're doubting, then what you're doing is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And so that should cause us to realize that we need to be voraciously eating the Bible. You need to be taking it in. You need to be eating it and taking it in until you have grown. If you are weak in the faith, then you are a child and what you need is the milk of the word and you need to take it in, you need to take it in, you need to take it in. Babies eat a lot. And that's because you don't know what to do with yourself if you don't have the knowledge of God. And so once you begin to become a young man in the faith and you start to apply it, you have some strength. You fight like an amateur, but you fight. You have strength and you're applying it, but with blunt instruments. You hit people with the broad side of the sword instead of the sharp side of the sword, which is way less effective, but it works. And so the need to figure out how to use the tools that God has given and to use them with skill. And once you have reached maturity and you are a father in the faith, you have a deep knowledge of God. You know God. You know God. That stability, that's what we're called to be. And there's not this scurrying around. There's not this amateurish ineffectiveness. That mature state allows you to move with strength and bear with others' weaknesses. So we're called to understand how to deal with things from the more basic to the less basic. We're called to have a deep knowledge of God. We need the categories so that we can work effectively and we can be able to avoid destroying the things that God is building. And when you have faith and you're mature, you can deal with the facts that other people don't understand yet. And you can bear the load and work with them to help them to mature. You can lift them up when they stumble. You can help them to carry their pack. 
Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. You know it's sin sometimes to say the truth? Here's what I didn't just say. I didn't just say it's right to lie ever. What I said is, sometimes there are truths that it would be sin to say at that moment. For example, if you pick a hot button issue when you need to be dealing with the things that are foundational, you're creating chaos. So you seek to deal with things in an orderly way. There are also times when it's sin to not say truth. So time to speak, time to remain silent. And if you want to know which is which, you should probably voraciously consume the word of God and look for the things that deal with that idea. If you have a deep knowledge and you know when to be quiet, you can be happy even in the midst of that person saying something false because you don't condemn yourself even though they condemn you. Happy is he. Now, if you doubt, you're condemned in what you eat. If you doubt when you do something, it's sin. So, go to page 5. The doctrine to consider here is the first commandment, the duty to know and acknowledge God. So, God is the good. We should use the means that God has appointed to grow in the possession of God. We possess God by knowing God. God's not a physical object. God is spiritual. Our spirits possess God by possessing the things revealed by the Spirit, the spiritual things, the Word of God. And as we believe the Word of God, we are possessing the spiritual things. We're possessing God. The divine nature is in our minds when we believe the truth about God. We possess God by knowing God. We should seek to grow in the knowledge of God and to share the knowledge of God by the means that God has appointed. And that's the focus of the second commandment, is the means. So the first commandment is focused on the goal, and the second commandment is focused on the means. So, which is the first commandment? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So what does that mean? You should have no other gods in the sight of God. Before me doesn't mean like prioritization. That's true. You shouldn't have any other gods that are ahead of God, that are more important than God, because you shouldn't have any other gods in the sight of God at all. And God sees everything. Everything is before his face. He's everywhere present. So what are the duties that are required in the first commandment? The duties required in the first commandment are, and we have this list of stuff. The short version of it is, knowing and acknowledging God to be the only true God and our God. This is the Westminster Larger Catechisms pulling together of a bunch of verses. You can, you can see on page 6, I've got all the scripture citations. I don't have time to go through all of them. I can't demonstrate all these things to you. But what I'm doing is I'm giving you the scripture citations and I'm giving you claims. I'm pulling together, this is the pulling together by those who have gone before us in the faith, the things that are categorized in the bucket of the first commandment. And so, if you want to grow in the knowledge of God, if you want to know that God is the highest good and acknowledge that before men, then you've got to think about how to do that. 
And so this longer list is telling us how do we do that. We're to know and acknowledge God, to be the only true God, and also to be our God. He's ours by covenant, and he's ours because we believe him. He's ours because we possess him. So we do that by worshiping and glorifying God in a manner that's fitting to the fact that he's the only true God and that he's our God. Now, worshiping and glorifying God, we can use those words to mean the same thing, right? We can talk about how all of life is worship in the sense that we have a duty to worship God in all of life. That's absolutely true. But the Bible uses the idea of glorifying God in everything we do, like whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, right? We glorify God. That's our duty. That's how we're supposed to seek the glory of God in every detail of life. But there's also the idea, the category of the set-apart time that's for communion with God without other things. That's what the Lord's Day is for. And we're supposed to have a morning and evening worship where we read the Bible, pray, and sing psalms. And in doing those things, we have a time that's devoted to God. Well, all of life is supposed to be devoted to God. Yes, all of life is for the glory of God. But there are times where we're to do nothing except for those acts of worship. And those acts of worship that we are to do for private worship and for household worship, and then in the public assembly, the church, those things God makes clear what he wants us to do in that. He also makes it clear what he wants us to do in the whole of life. So, we worship God in a manner that's fitting, and we glorify God in a manner that's fitting. So all of life is for the glory of God, and we have that set-apart time, and then we have the rest of life. Six days we labor to the glory of God, and one day we rest from our ordinary work for the worship of God in a special manner to his glory. Now how do you do this? You do this by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing God. Right? Notice there's, a, there's this semicolon. The goal is to lump stuff together in a way that helps you to think about how they kind of grow out of each other. Right? We're to think in a manner that shows that God is the true and living God and that He is our God. We're to meditate on those things. What's the difference between thinking and meditating? The way you think every instant, right, is, is you're supposed to do it to the glory of God. And then meditation is the intentional focusing on something where you go, I'm going to think about this for a while. You know the difference. The times when you sit there and think about a thing versus the thoughts that are constantly passing through your mind. So we are to think in general in a way that glorifies God and we are to meditate in a way that glorifies God. We talk about meditation, and you hear it, and you think about Eastern meditation, emptying of the mind. Biblical meditation has been around longer, and biblical meditation is not the emptying of the mind. It is the filling of the mind with the truth of God. When you sit and think about the things of God, you can also walk and think about the things of God. Maybe even drive. We're to remember in a way that glorifies God. How many of you suffer from remembering things and then groaning as though it weren't from the sovereign hand of God? We're to remember the things that occur in our lives as though they came from a sovereign God, because they did. We are to remember truths in a way that brings honor to God. So our, our, the way we deal with our memories, 
what we esteem and honor, what we adore, what we choose, the things that we set our affections on, that we value highly and desire, and even the things we fear. These are things that need to be ordered according to the word of God. If we fear wrongly, we will have anxiety and worry. We are, how do we do that? By believing what God says. By trusting his promises that he is seeking our good and that the things he's given to us will bless us if we use them rightly. By hoping. What's hoping? Hoping is just you know, wishing that something good would happen. Hoping is a confident desire that something is going to happen. When God makes a promise, you can have confidence that it's going to happen. Which means if he tells us, hey, exercise dominion, fill the earth, Hey, disciple the nations. Teach them to obey all the things they've commanded. We can have a confidence that it's going to happen. And so we apply what he's commanded and we expect it to happen. Maybe not in the timing we want. But he will give signs of progress. The things we delight and rejoice in, what do you exult over? What makes you smile? These things ought to be ordered by the Word of God. And the way that happens is by thinking on His truth, meditating on His truth, remembering things in a way that honors Him. The shaping of your thoughts controls your emotional reactions. What you think on controls what you value. Emotions are a result of thoughts. And so, how you feel about a thing is a sign for you about how you're thinking about it. And so, when you have feelings that you go, these feelings are not appropriate, what you do is you say, what lie am I believing that's shaping these feelings? And then you find that lie and you take the word of God, and you argue with yourself. You argue with yourself. You preach to yourself. You find the place where your feelings are inappropriate, and you argue with yourself. We're to be zealous for God. What is zeal? Zeal is when you highly value a thing, when you greatly desire a thing, and that desire is not suppressed by other desires. It's when that desire overcomes other desires. It's when that desire is above any other desire, that's the thing you're most zealous about. And what you value is controlled by what you think is good. When you find yourself not zealous for God, it's because you are not believing that growing in the knowledge of God is better than something else. There's something else that you're thinking, this thing, this thing will make me happy. This thing will solve my problems. This thing is going to be better for me than anything else. What you most desire, what you're most zealous about, what your thought attention goes to, the things your actions are poured out on, the things that pour out of your mouth that you talk about, those are the things that you care about. And they're a sign for you that you go, there's a lie I'm believing if something other than God is the highest thing there. 
And so your zeal is built by seeing the greatness of God. People will say, you know, it's not really worth arguing over the details about the definition of God or like the details of predestination. Those are the things that make it so that your view of God is high. When you see the attributes of God and you think about what does it mean when we talk about the aseity of God? What does it mean when we talk about the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God? What do these things mean? What is the doctrine of the Trinity? How do I explain it to a challenger? What is the doctrine of the Incarnation? How do I deal with it? How do I deal with the idea that God is God and man in the second person of the Trinity? What do we mean that there's one God and three persons who are God? These things, people try to tell you to don't worry about the resolution of those issues. If you don't resolve them, you will have a weak faith. If you don't know about them, you will think God is a thing not worth thinking about. If you don't resolve the places of difficulty in consideration of the doctrine of predestination, you will not view God as gloriously as you ought. And so getting the answers to those things, pulling away the fog and the understanding failures, when you do that, it makes it so that the glory of God is brighter in your own mind, and it makes it so that you value Him and His glory more highly, and it makes it so that you see him as a thing to be further obtained. The reason people don't want that to be a focus is because people hate the idea of people losing, losing fellowship over the details of the invisible God. But if the details of the invisible God do not matter, then why have a church? Those are things worth dealing with because those are the things that when you see them clearly, when you see who God is clearly, your zeal for Him increases and you will put these things to use. Calling upon God and giving Him praise and thanks. Prayer and praise are things that build up our view of God. Do you find yourself cold to God? One of the things you need to do is to pray. One of the things you need to do is to sing praise to Him. Yielding obedience and submission to Him with the whole man. Being careful in all things to please Him. Sorrowful when in anything He's offended. And walking humbly with Him. Right, This idea that we yield obedience and submission, we try to please God, and we're sorrowful at offending God. That's the general idea of loving God in terms of the actions that we do and are valuing His approval over the approval of men, fearing God rather than men. Now, we're going through these positive duties, and the appropriate response on your part is to say, I'm not doing these things. Not that you shouldn't be doing them. Of course you should be doing them. But you're not. And so what this does, what the law does, is it constantly shows us our guilt. The more you meditate on the law of God, the more your guilt will be elevated in your own mind. You will see your guilt more fully. And the seeing of your guilt magnifies your recognition of the need for the gospel. It magnifies your recognition of the need for Christ. And so as you see your own pollution, the magnitude of the grace of God in Christ to come and pay for our sins is increased. In our own minds. Not in reality. In our own minds. And so, as you know God more deeply, as you see His holiness more fully, as it's revealed in the law, what it does is it shows us our need 
for Christ's death in our place to pay for our sins. And so walking humbly with God, walking humbly with God, is walking with God in a way where we recognize that we are guilty, that He has saved us, and then, out of gratitude, we are seeking more and more to obey Him. Because that's the good life. And so we walk with Him in humility, seeing Him for who He is and seeing ourselves for whom we are. Page 6. So what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? But atheism is the most extreme, right? Denying God. And so, the question of atheism, you know, can you have any knowledge of truth if there is no eternal mind? If God is not eternal, what is? Something has to be. If God is not the good, what is? No meaningful choice is possible apart from a highest good. And there's nothing else that's going to hold up to scrutiny that you examine it, except for God is the highest good. idolatry in having a false god or multiple gods instead of the true god. Idolatry has two meanings. And the idolatry of the first commandment is worshiping a false god. The idolatry of the second commandment is worshiping the true god in a way that he hasn't appointed. And so we'll focus on that soon. But the focus of the first commandment is having a false view of the good. Is there anything else you're valuing above god? The answer is yes. Every time you sin, you're choosing something above God. And then why is that happening? Because you believe something false. You believe something is better than God in that moment. And so the question is, how do you combat that? You combat that by growing in the knowledge of God. And that's why the first commandment is about knowing God. If you don't confess the true God... That is a sin. So you need to do that. You need to be confessing Him, right? And one of the glories of singing psalms is that as we sing them, it's a confession of faith. The omission or neglect of anything due to God is required in His commandments. So in other words, not doing the stuff He positively commands. And, and look at the next points there. Ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of God. Those things, ignorance can be corrected by a knowledge of the Word. Forgetfulness is corrected by what we think upon. I was talking to uh, one of my younger sons this morning about memorization. And as we were talking about memorization, he's memorizing the Shorter Catechism, and he's trying to figure out how can he, how can he get that. Because he does the work of memorization, and then he feels like the things that, are, that he's already memorized, he starts to forget it, and he's moving on to memorize new things. And I said, what you need to do is take the things you've memorized, and the whole point of memorizing them is you meditate on it at times throughout the day so that you have something useful to think about. That's the point of the memorization. And so things you memorize, you will better keep them in your memory if you think about them. If you use your spare moments to think about the Word of God that you've stored up in your heart. If you memorize verses or memorize the systematic pulling together of those words. So this idea of Ignorance and forgetfulness, those are overcome by studying and memorization and then meditating throughout the day. Misapprehensions. When you misunderstand or have false opinions, the danger is be careful 
about your beliefs, can you prove them from the Word of God? When you think something and you're about to act on it, you want to ask yourself, can I prove this from the Word of God? And that idea of dealing with that throughout your life, getting into that habit of thought of asking yourself, can I prove this from the Word of God? That habit of thought will dramatically reshape the way that you deal with choices in life. So, we go into bold and curious searching into his secrets. You go to a person with tarot cards, you read a horoscope, you do any of those types of things. You're trying to find a way to get secret knowledge of God. People will take this idea of bold and curious searching into his secrets and they'll say, don't try to figure out the doctrine of the Trinity, don't try to figure out the incarnation, don't try to figure out predestination and how it fits together with human responsibility. That's a bold and curious searching into his secrets. No, it's not. He's revealed those things. He's revealed them so we can think about them. He's revealed them so that we can understand them. The things that he's revealed are for us and for our children. The things he has not revealed, that's what we're not supposed to search into. That's why divination is forbidden. Because you're trying to get secret knowledge that God hasn't given. What's going to happen tomorrow? God didn't tell you. Worry about today. Today's sufficient. The idea of going into the secrets of God in a bold and curious searching has to do with trying to pretend like there's an authority that's equal to or higher than God's word. Like there's some other source by which we can have certainty of knowledge and the revelation that God has given. Now, the remainder of the list here that we have, the remainder of the list here involves a bunch of ways in which we value something more highly than God and a bunch of ways in which we're believing falsehood. That is all corrected. That is all corrected by taking in the Word and by having our view of the value of things be shaped by what God's Word says and being able to argue with ourselves to show how the false thing we're valuing is not as good as we think. The book of Ecclesiastes in particular does an excellent job. It walks through all of the logical possibilities of false views of the good, and it deconstructs them. That's what Solomon's doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's tearing down, he's tearing down the false views of the good. And so being able to do that helps us to avoid carnal delights and joys as a focus of our life. It helps us to avoid various ways in which we make God less than other pursuits. And so being able to catch ourselves and to argue with ourselves recognizes that we are rational creatures and that what we're to do is to apply what God has revealed in detail. That's the life of faith. And so the rest of this lays out things like making men lords of our faith and conscience. That's what Romans 14 is talking about. Don't let men be lords of our faith and conscience. We're not to look to the weaker brother and say whatever he thinks is sin is sin. We're supposed to be careful to guard our liberty. And at the same time, we are to be careful to not offend the weaker brother while we seek to come to unity. Now, the details of the first commandment are a thing that oftentimes does not feel as relatable 
as other commandments. The fifth commandment, we go, oh, human relationships. These are really important. I really care about that. How do I have a good relationship with my daughter or wife or my whatever? You know, all that kind of stuff. And we get to the sixth commandment, and, you know, we deal with anger, and we go, yeah, anger is a really big part of my life. I need to deal with that. Seventh commandment, oh, yeah, there's, there's immodest people all around, and we deal with a pornographic age. Eighth commandment, yeah, I spend a lot of time working for money. Ninth commandment, I'm really tempted to lie. Tenth commandment, yeah, I really do struggle with envy. That's a big part of my life. The first commandment feels more distant. It doesn't feel like the applications are as interesting. You're all seeing for a second that that's a problem. That's because we don't think learning about God is interesting. And I want you to think about how dumb that is for just a second. Do we think video games or flowers or cars or guns or human relationships are going to be more interesting than the God that made them all? Who invented human relationships? God. Who invented, who invented humans? God. There is nothing more interesting than God. And we all struggle with the study of theology and reading about the attributes of God. That's a problem. And so the question is, why? And I'm challenging you with this. You've got to figure out what is the lie that you believe that makes you think that God is not interesting. If you don't think he's interesting, you're not going to have a zeal for his knowledge. If you don't think he's interesting, you're not going to spend time reading about theology. If you don't think he's interesting, you're not going to wrestle through those other problems. Oftentimes, the reason we end up dealing with any of those doctrinal issues is because somebody somewhere told us Christianity doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to convert. Here's this doctrine that's incoherent. And we go, I have to beat this person, so I'm going to look it up. Why didn't we look it up before? We didn't know. Why didn't we look it up before? Intellectual laziness. An unwillingness to seek after God. An unwillingness to pursue the knowledge of God. God uses heresy and error and falsehood and persecution to make it so that we search for a defense of the truths. And the persecution that we are suffering now in America, as we see America declining more and more away from any sort of Christian order, is because of our laziness and inattentiveness to the knowledge of God. It is because we do not care. It is because we, the church, the people of God, do not care about the knowledge of God. And if we would take our free time to read theology, rather than to watch whatever, or listen to whatever. You could watch something about theology. You could listen to things about theology. But if we would take our free time to pursue more deeply the knowledge of God, rather than all of the things we spend it on, we would be stronger and more powerful. We would walk the earth like giants. Why do we find God boring? When we find God boring... That's a sign that we hate him. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members?
and those with speaking rights. Mr. Nye? For your teaching elders, I have a question for clarification. Um, you were mentioning that uh, the, the period between uh, the death of Christ and 70 AD was this period of overlapping between the old and new administrations of the covenant of grace. And that during this period, um, uh, in general, you were, uh, my clarification is the, the old covenant ceremonies and um, the ceremonial law. Um, I just wanted to clarify, was that okay for all Christians to do or only Christians with the Jewish background to do? Is it okay for, would it, was it okay for Gentile Christians to participate in the ceremonial law during that time? So, yes, it was okay during the time of overlap, during the days of Messiah, for Gentiles to do the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant. So, for example, you have Paul having one of his disciples be circumcised for a religious purpose during that time. And he was able to take on the other ceremonial rites as a result because he became a Jew outwardly. But it would not be permissible um, after the destruction of Jerusalem to do that. Okay. I was under the impression that, that it was not permissible for Gentiles to participate in those things. But then, if that were the case, then the Gentile convert would not have been able to be circumcised. Right. I'll have to look more into that. Thank you very much. Right. Okay, Mr. Courtney. I had a, a brief uh, uh, question. Um, this is something that uh, has been, been bothering me uh, since Tuesday. Uh, it's not just politics. I wouldn't bring it up on the Sabbath. But the um, results of the election were very poor, very sad. And I think a lot of that, the reason for that, is because Christians who should have voted did not, and use the age-old argument, which I think is a, a weak one, that, um, well, I'm not going to vote for somebody that doesn't believe in God, or I'm not going to vote for a person that, you know, doesn't, I can't check off all the points on that I'm, they're in agreement with me on, so I'm just going to cast them aside. How is that not a vote for the people that are in favor of murdering babies, letting the border be overrun and drugs run, be rampant and things that are not just politics in our society. Is it not, to not vote is a vote. And uh, I just want to see the people that we want uh, are not always going to be exactly what we want. They're going to have weaknesses. They're going to have points that we disagree with them on. But we're not voting for perfection. We're voting for the better of two people, especially when one person is, like I said, pro-killing and of babies, and the other is not. So, um, is this not two questions? Is this not an indictment of Christians that didn't vote? And if not, why not? Sure. So, okay. So first, um, is vote is is failing to vote the same as voting for? the worst side. 
So mathematically, no. I mean, right, let's think about that mathematically for a second. If you have a vote that's tied, if you vote for one side, that side all of a sudden wins, right? If you don't vote, it doesn't change the tie. Uh, just mathematically, it is not the same. Um, morally, casting a vote for a person to enter an office, um, you know, there are consequences, right? And one choice might be better than another, even if both are bad. Um, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does the law of God say mm -hmm. about what we're supposed to do for voting? And the commandment we have is to choose from amongst ourselves, in Exodus 18, verse 21, men who are kail, competent, able, men of valor. We are to vote for men who fear God. We are to vote for men who love the truth. And we are to vote for men who hate covetousness. And if you vote for a person who does not have those qualifications, you are voting to put, you are choosing a man who does not have the qualifications. That's not perfection. That's not perfection. That's the qualification set that was given to us by God. And so those are the things that we are told to, to look for. Um, people are sinners who have those qualification sets. And so it is not a demand for perfection. The fact that we have a the fact that we have an administration in power and have had an administration in power that is godless, as opposed to marriage that's biblically defined, as opposed to uh, stopping the murder of babies, that is opposed to you know, desirous of redistributive taxation, theft, right? That, 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 those things, those are all, that's a judgment on us, absolutely. The result of this particular election, the judgment is not the judgment that Christians are unwilling to vote for lesser of two evils or something like that, the, the judgment that's on us is we don't have candidates that are qualified for office. And that's because we do not know God well enough and we do not seek to spread the knowledge of God well enough. And so the, when you are in a situation where you go, wow, there's these, the, the, the only good options here you know, seem really bad, the only options that are available here seem really bad. The question is, how do you fix that in the future? And it doesn't justify voting for a person who's not qualified. And so if God gives us qualifications, we don't have the right to ignore them. And if we're in a situation where we don't have men with those qualifications, the question is why? How do we fix that? How do we repent of that? And we repent of that by knowing God more deeply and we repent of that by seeking to spread the knowledge of God more deep, more, more, more consistently, and to apply his law in more detail. So you have anything else you want to say about that, or you disagree with the answer? Well, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think um, his word also says, thou shalt not kill. And if I don't vote for somebody that I know is not only desirous of, but in a position to stop <coughs> the murder of babies, I am a part of that evil because now I'm voting for the other person who I know is for continuing the killings. Um, I just, while we're trying to get to the position in our society where we have godly men who meet the qualifications uh, that you, uh, Claire, mentioned, while we're trying to get to that point, we need to do everything we can to apply God's word 
especially when it says, thou shalt not kill. And if I don't, if I don't vote for somebody that is in a position to actually stop that, I am saying, well, I know the Holocaust is going on, and I'm just going to live life as usual because I know it's not the way it should be. That's not what God wants. So I'm just going to wait till we get to that point where it is what God wants, and then I'll then I'll step up. It doesn't work like that. It's we do everything we can in the meantime. Okay, so I think what we should do is um, come back. So I'll write, what we need to do is have a, a conversation following up about this, and we need to report yeah. back to the congregation about the results of the conversation. And so, um, That's all I have to say. Sure, but I think, I think we need to seek to resolve, because there's a plain raising of doctrinal difference, right? And so what we need to do now is to have a discussion and seek to see what does God's word say about that, and we'll come back to the congregation with a, a resolution of what God's word has to say on the subject. So right, thank, thank you. you very much. All right, then seeing no other questions or objections, uh, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would cause the preaching of your word to be powerful in the transforming of our hearts, that you would renew us after the image of Christ, that you would cause us to bear good fruit, that you would cause us to seek your knowledge more fully, that you would cause us to act carefully based upon what we can demonstrate from your word, that we would act in faith and not act out of doubt, and you would help us to remember that whatever is not of faith is sin, and to be careful to apply that to all of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our actions. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right.